Thank you for joining us today for the preaching ministry of Dr. Chris Aiken, Senior Pastor of Inglewood Baptist Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Inglewood is a dynamic ministry reaching Eastern North Carolina and the world with the timeless truth of the gospel. For more information, visit us online at inglewoodbaptist.com. Now here's Pastor Chris with today's message. Let me invite you, if you brought a copy of the scriptures with you, open with me to the book of Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews 2, we're going to begin in verse 9 this morning. We're going to speak on the subject of Christ, the Christ who is perfected through suffering. And uh, man, I've enjoyed thus far our walk through the book of Hebrews and uh, uh, it's refreshing to my soul, though I'll admit to you there's a lot in Hebrews that I don't understand. Hey, but Better yet, let's don't stop there. That's too small of a field to plow right there. There's a lot about God I don't understand. There's a lot about the person of God I don't understand. There's a lot about the ways of God, about the methods of God, about the purpose of God that I don't understand. And I don't know about you, but uh, one of the things I think God's taught me through the years is to not try so hard to say I understand him that I oversimplify him as though I needed to be able to define God by a few sentences on the back of a dinner napkin sitting down at Waffle House. God's bigger than my three-sentence explanation about him, okay? Now listen, the fact that I can't explain everything about him doesn't change who he is. It It doesn't somehow shake my faith in him. I don't know why it took God six days to create everything. I mean, he's God. He could have done it. No, he could have just like that, but it took him six days. Was he just tuckered out? I don't know, but I believe it. And in believing it, I, it, my faith's not shaken because I can't explain it. I can't see why. It wasn't in an instant or why he didn't just start a process that, that panned out over a few billion years. But his word says that he did it in six days. And listen, I trust that that's best because if God did something that wasn't best, it means he settled for less than best, which would make him a pretty weak God. If God did it, it's best. And the what I don't know is don't end there. I don't, I don't know why, <laughs> here's a question that some in the world would ask today. I don't know why God planned marriage the way he did. I don't know why he holds us or teaches us a sexual ethic the way he does. I don't know why God arranged child rearing the way he did or why he commissioned a bunch of broken sinners to be responsible for carrying the great commission into all the world when he could have just called up a couple of angels and pretty much been effective. I don't know why. But the fact that I don't know doesn't change the fact that I believe that's what he did. I don't know why, as we continue in our study, God saw fit to perfect the Savior through suffering. I don't know why. But I'm going to take the writer of Hebrews at his word and I'm going to take the inspired word of God because it's the inspired word of God and I'm just going to allow the writer of Hebrews to make his case and then by faith receive that. And in the midst of it today I hope to show you something that God's just kind of 
Well, he's just rocked my world with this week. Are you up for that? Good. Then I'm going to invite you, if you would, to stand with me as we read together Hebrews 2, verses 9 and following. And if you're joining us from home, thank you for, uh, for joining us as we read the Word of God together. I'm reading from the New American Standard translation. Hebrews 2, beginning in verse 9, down through verse 13. The Bible says, But we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Pause right there. Father, would you in these moments, would you help us to understand what we don't understand and to take by faith what we do? And then I pray that you'd apply the word in such a way that we would respond to you for who you are and for what you've done and for what you desire to do. So teach us even now and then receive our response as worship. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. You be seated. Thank you for standing. If you'd like to follow along, there is an outline available for you. You'll find it on your uh, church app. Uh, just go there under sermon notes. You'll find it located right there. If you don't have the church app, I should make you do push-ups or something, but I won't. But uh, you should get the church app. But if you don't have it, then you could just text the word notes to the number you see on the screen. We'll send you a link to the outline so you'll have that and you could follow along with us. I want to share with you three assertions, three things that the writer of Hebrews, that the Word of God asserts. It's a positive statement, assertions made in the text as they're related to Christ, the Christ who's perfected through suffering. Notice with me, first of all, I want you to know, to notice the assertion of the necessity of death and the glory of the resurrection. The necessity of the Savior's death and the glory of the Savior's resurrection, the need, the essential nature the necessity of both his death and the glory of his resurrection. Now, believe it or not, this one fact right here, the death of the Messiah, the suffering and the death of Christ have been a tension point of many people throughout the world. For instance, I was reading about this again yesterday in mainstream Islamic teaching. One of the reasons why our cousins of, of Muslim training. I see you say cousins, why? Descended from Abraham, cousins. So one of the tension points for them is the fact that we worship a God who died. And they go, well, that can't be a real God. If it were, a real, that can't be. It's obviously not the truth the way things are. So in mainstream Islamic teaching, the very death of Christ for them is evidence that he's nothing more than a prophet. It affirms that he's one of the prophets and that in his time, uh, and that he cannot be the satisfaction for sin. He couldn't do that because he's a prophet. If he were God, 
He would not have died. And if he died and rose again, and he's the Messiah and he lives today in heaven, well, then he would be one of the worshipers around the throne of Allah. And they, he would be giving them alms. So they said, well, he can't be the Messiah. Others have said, well, there's a cross event in history that no one with a, no one rationally disputes. So how did that happen? They said, well, here's, here's what happens. Uh, because Jesus couldn't die, if he's a prophet, it, here's what happened. God somehow did a switcheroo. And while Jesus was on the cross, took him and sent in a substitute who would die in his place. And, uh, and it, it's a, they just did a, just a switch. Why? Because there's no way they could worship a God or think well of a God who died. Yet the Bible teaches the suffering and the resurrection of Jesus as the Messiah. Orthodox Judaism, another one. Their teachings point to a conquering Messiah who will restore the land, who will establish political power, who will uh, give back cities, who will reestablish worship and give power to the Jewish people. And therefore, it literally rejects the Christian teaching of any kind of a suffering Messiah because in the teaching of Judaism, their Messiah must be a conqueror, not one who's conquered and in suffering. Yet the Bible teaches both the suffering and the resurrection of the Messiah. It's only two examples, but both deny suffering. Both deny the death and the resurrection of Jesus. But it didn't start there. And by the way, it's been going since then. Paul said to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. Now, why would Paul even say that unless there were Jews that stumbled over this and Gentiles that thought it was ridiculous? Uh, he said it because of that. And by the way, the inclusion of the argument of Jesus' death in verse 9 means that it was a sticky point for the Jewish background believers as well. Those who the writer of Hebrews writes to, the fact that he even includes this tells us they wrestled with it a little bit too. So, hey, listen, if you wrestle with how did, why did the Messiah die? You're in good company. People have been doing that since the beginning. Look at Hebrews 2 verse 9 again. We, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, we see him crowned with glory and honor. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Some truths in there that you don't want to miss. First of all, Jesus really did suffer. The Greek word for suffering there is pasco, where we would get the pasco lamb. We've been talking about this on Wednesday nights extensively through the suffering passages of 1 Peter. And the word literally means genuine, physical distress and pain even unto the point of death. He really did suffer. He wasn't... Uh, he didn't look like he suffered, but he really didn't. He really did suffer. And by the way, it wasn't a mild discomfort or just a limited exposure, but it was agony to its fullest expression. When the writer says that he tasted death for everyone, that doesn't mean that he just sampled it like, 
Like when you would go to your grandma's kitchen and she would say, honey, try this out. I just made it. And you, you go there and you take a taste and you go, what is that? I was visiting with a friend of mine. He had adopted two children from uh, the former Soviet bloc countries. And their favorite meal in all the world was borscht. I'm like, I came over for dinner. I'm like, what is that? He said, well, it's, it's beets. Well, I don't know that I liked it when my mama made it. But he said, you, you, this is the way they like it. And man, the kids, they were drooling. I mean, needed a napkin, the whole deal. And I said, well, I'll take a taste. I took a taste. I thought, I don't see it. I don't see it. I, there might be something to it, but I don't get it. You may think, well, that's crazy. Beets are wonderful. Good for you. I tasted it. That's not what this is talking about. It's not talking about sampling something. That's not the idea here. When it says that he tasted death, it means, it means that he took it on, but it was not ultimately victorious over him. That's the idea there. It means that he suffered and that he tasted death. But death didn't conquer him. He just, uh, he dealt with it and then was victorious over it. By the way, not only did he really suffer, not only did he really taste death, but he was really crowned with a victor's crown. He really did receive, that's what he says here, because of the suffering of death, he's crowned with glory and honor. That word crowned is the, it's the Greek word stephanos, it's the You've seen it in, in like the Olympics, the old Olympics games and everything, where you could get a wreath that was made and it, was, it showed that you were victorious over the conquest, that when you stood as the, as the winner of the games, you wore that crown because you were victorious over. That's the word here. It says he was crowned with a victor's crown of glory, doxa, that which belongs to God alone, and honor that which is of great value and respect. He was crowned with respect and honor and the glory that belongs to God alone because of his death. And this, not because man deserved it, but by the grace, the charis, the unmerited, undeserved favor of God because of God's goodness toward us, Christ really did suffer. Christ really did taste death. Christ really did rise from the dead with proof that he was victorious over death. He really was crowned with glory for everyone who didn't deserve it, but because God was gracious toward them. You say, well, Chris, that's good. But I, listen, I've been in the church since Moby Dick was a minnow. I don't have any trouble believing any of that. I got you. Because many in the church today would, would say, man, I, I accept that. I confess that even. I even confess about, about his suffering and and resurrection, I, I confess all of that. That's part of my faith. Good, I get it. But this next assertion does cause even those to sit there and go, well, I accept that. Man, I struggle with this. They have to go get a jar of Tums and chew on it because this one really does give them a little bit of indigestion. So notice this second assertion with me. The sacrifice, that's Christ, the sacrifice was perfected, made perfect through suffering. The sacrifice was made perfect. He was perfected somehow. There was something not perfected and yet through suffering it became perfected. The, the perfect one, God's son, was somehow perfected and through his suffering. 
Now that's worth taking a minute to look at. Look at verse 10 with me. He says, for it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. It was fitting to perfect the author of salvation through suffering. It was good. It was right. It's almost as if the writer of Hebrews is responding to a question that hasn't been asked out loud and yet he knows it's running as a subtext in, in, in his audience's mind. Kind of like in church sometimes when you hear about a doctrine and you go, man, I'd ask that. It's like being in connect group and you're like, I'd ask that question, but I don't want anybody to think I don't know. So I just won't ask that question. I'll just, it's there. You know it's there, but you just don't want to ask that question it's there. You might have asked yourself the question, what does it mean to be perfected? Through suffering. How do you get perfected? Through difficulty. And, and if it's possible for you and I as humans, how under heaven could it be possible for the very Son of God to be perfected? It's as though the writer is saying, hey, you know what? The people there are listening going, if that's even true, is it right or just that the Son of Man would have to suffer in order to be perfected. Is it even right or just? Hey, Chris, is it just that the Son of Man suffered? That's a great question. And if by just you mean did Jesus get what he deserved, then no, that was nothing just about that. But if you mean by just, was it right, was it necessary, was it essential for him in fulfilling the purpose, the reason that he came, that he would suffer as a, in our place, then yes, it was necessary. And by the way, it was sufficient. So if by right or just, you mean, uh, did he deserve it? No. But did we need it? And the answer is, of course, yes. See, Jesus was perfect. Without blemish, without stain, he's worthy of glory, he's worthy of honor, he was God. He is God. None of that changed. And the suffering he would experience was not his own, but it was ours. Yet in his suffering unto death, Christ was, the Bible says, perfected as our Savior. That word perfected, it's the Greek word teleo. And it means to be brought to its fullness or completion. So don't think of it as correcting a deficiency Rather, think of it as fulfilling a purpose. He was perfected through suffering. Does that mean there was something wrong with him? No, 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 no. It's just it wasn't complete. There was something that was yet, that he had yet to experience, that he was yet to know, that he had yet to do. And he was perfected in that doing through suffering. Christ was already perfect in his holiness. It didn't make him holy. He was perfect in his justice. It didn't make him just. He was perfect in his love and in his mercy. None of that was perfected through suffering. He was all those things while he was still in heaven. And he was and is, by the way, as the writer has told us over and again, superior to us, superior to every other creature or created being in heaven. He's superior to angels. We spent two and a half weeks talking just about that alone. Superior to the prophets, superior to the law, superior to all of these things. Well, then what needed to be perfected? 
in heaven, Jesus was everything except human. You and I are made in his image. He's not made in ours. What that means is, is that there's some aspects of being God we'll only look at from a distance we'll never be. There were some aspects in heaven of being human that Jesus would look at but would never have done. In other words, in heaven he was never tempted in all ways as we are yet without sin. But by becoming one of us, he then experienced that. That's going to be real important the next time we talk about this from Hebrews when we talk about him as a faithful high priest. But he became as we are so that he could fulfill the purpose for which we were created. And in that he was perfect. In heaven he was other. But he condescended and came to be like us in order to, catch us now, to identify with us and so that we could identify with him. He did so by becoming a sacrifice or a representative or a substitute. And he died in our place for sin. That identification is a big deal. In fact, it's very prominent. In fact, all throughout the Jewish uh, religious liturgy and its worship liturgy, there was a process of identification that was rehearsed over and over again for thousands of years before Christ ever came. In order, I believe, to point to the role Christ would fulfill in his identification. Right there in the Mosaic Law. In fact, let me just show you one place that it occurs. If you're taking notes, jot down Leviticus 4, verses 27 through 29. In Leviticus 4, Moses, writing of the, of the worship code here to the, to the Levitical priest. Now, just prior to verse 27, he says, here's what a priest does when a priest sins. By the way, same instructions. And then he says this, verse 27, Now if any one of the common people sins unintentionally in doing any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done, and he becomes guilty, if his sin which he has committed is made known to him, then he shall bring for his offering a goat, a female without defect, for his sin, for his sin which he has committed. And he shall lay his hands on the head of the sin offering and slay the sin offering at the place of the burnt offering. Why did he do? Why lay his hands on there? Because in that moment, he said, this is my sin. And this is, this, this animal is my substitute because this is my deserved end. I deserve what this sacrifice is about to experience. When Jesus came, he came to identify with us that we could identify with him. So as he is given over, as he takes on the wrath of God for sin, he does so with us fully identifying with him because he came and fully identified with us. Only perfect. See, sameness is required for the sufficiency of the sacrifice. Identification it is. But substitution is also essential because, hey, listen, 
What if that person who had sinned, it comes to their mind, this is in Leviticus, all of that had taken place, but there was no offering. Well, then it would be the worshiper who would have to die, whose blood would have to be shed. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. The substitution is essential. Because see, hey, listen, you and I stand condemned as sinners before God. And were there not a substitute, the penalty for our sin would be our own death, our own shed blood. But in Christ, our substitute, our son of suffering, our man of sorrows, takes on the death that we deserve and absorbs all of God's wrath in it. Wrath against me? No, no. Wrath against rebellion, which is what you did. He took on all of it. That's why the writer says it is fitting for Christ, our salvation, to be perfected through suffering, through his death. What we could not do, that's to be like God, Christ fulfilled in becoming like us so that we might become, as we'll look at next, next time we get together, so that he might become our faithful mediator. Third assertion I want you to see. Number three, the redeeming call to family. The redeeming call, the redeeming, to redeem is to uh, take a, it's to purchase back one who is a, uh, who's owned by another. That's the imagery there. It's like to be a slave to something and have someone pay the price to free you from slavery, the redeeming call to family. One of the images we talk about here at Inglewood a lot is the image of family, the institution of family. In fact, Milestone Month is all about family. It's about family. It's about moms and dads and, and family units being the primary faith trainers of the generation to come, even in their own home, and helping them to grow and to become. We talk about family as primary and, uh, and as a church, as being a family of families, we're, we're one great big family, which is comprised of lots of families. Family's a big deal. Family speaks of relationship. Hey, family's not like your membership at uh, Planet Fitness, where you could go for a little while, then you don't have to go no more, but you still got a card in your wallet. It's fall, I'm sure somebody else is in that condition. If not Planet Fitness, YMCA, it's not like that or where, where you, you're part of an organization and then they start doing something you don't like, like, a, hey, I read, I read this week about a U.S. senator who said, hey, I was part of this group. I don't agree with them anymore. I'm going to be part of a different group. You can't do that with your family. You might look at your brother-in-law over Thanksgiving dinner and go, what a weirdo, but he's still your weirdo. You can't undo it. If you say, my brother-in-law's not weird, we don't have any weirdos in our family. You're the one. <laughs> you just don't know it. Everybody's got a weirdo, but it's your weirdo, your family. You're connected in such a way relationally that's not organization. It's not circumstance. It's not happenstance. You're part of a unit and that's why I say the redeeming call to family. While we focus on ministering to families, we're not merely a family under ourselves. We're a family of God. And 
That's exactly where the writer of Hebrews goes. Notice what he says in verse 11. He says, but for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. That word brethren, it, uh, it sounds masculine. That's a, that's a language restriction on it. It's really a gender neutral idea. You'd probably be better to translate as brothers and sisters. He's not ashamed to call us to become brothers and sisters of Christ. He's the one who sanctifies. We don't sanctify ourselves. We're the ones who are sanctified. And we, though, are not treated as less than in that process, but as Brothers and sisters fully adopted into the same family with the same father. Now catch that. There's nowhere sitting around the Lord's dinner table where he says, this is for my biological child. This is for my one and only, my only begotten. And then you folks. It's not like that. It's, hey, listen. God doesn't look and see you and I and think, boy, they barely Scraped in by the skin of their teeth. He doesn't do that. He, he's brought us into the family. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1, see how great a love the Father has shown toward us, bestowed on us that we would be called the very children of God and such we are. For this reason, hey, the world around us doesn't know us because it didn't know Him. It says, when God called you into the family, when He adopted you, when He made you His own, you became so, so much Him that the world around you doesn't even recognize you anymore. You're not, you went from being other to being the same, and from being the same to being other. Why? Because of the call to the family. There's a redemptive nature of that call in becoming part of the family. The bond of family is not based on convenience. It's not based on circumstance, but calling. But now, I want you to catch the emphasis that kind of rocked my world this week. Some, some around the office heard me preach this three or four times this week. Because it caught me and I thought, man, that's good. And you're like, was it the first time you read that? No. Don't be a weirdo. Of course I've read it before. But God said, don't miss this. Look at verse 11. For both he who sanctifies, that's the Lord, and those who are sanctified, that us, are all from one Father, for which reason, catch these words, he is not ashamed to call them brethren. God's not ashamed of you. Now, I'm not ashamed of God. That makes sense. Man, if I walked into a room and there were the Father, I, excuse me while I just try to create an analogy here, and there, were, there, were the, there was Lord Jesus standing there, I'd be like, hey, my Lord. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say you're not ashamed of Him. It says you walk into the room with all your stuff, and He looks over at you and says, hey, Chris, come here. Now, I know I'm not ashamed of him, but why under heaven with what he would know about me is he not ashamed of me? I'm ashamed of me most days. 
Why is he not ashamed of me? Why does the God of the universe, is the one who sees all, knows all, who understands my heart better than I understand my heart? Why can he look at me and not be ashamed? Because while we've sinned, we're also saints. Because he's saved us and because he didn't a little bit kind of sort of save us to get us started but he saved us completely he's not ashamed because you're completely saved you're not working toward it you're not trying to get more right than wrong you're not trying to earn favor you stand guiltless before him Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's, well, that doesn't mean everybody, Chris. I mean, that's for the rest of the saintly Christians. But me, you don't know how much I struggle with stuff. And uh, here's what I do know, friend. If you're a Christ follower, he is not ashamed to call you brethren. Yeah, but uh, with all that I go through, he's not ashamed. How can you believe that? Because he said it. And I believe it just as much as I believe the earth was created in six days and all things in it that God rested on the seventh day. I believe it as much as I believe every other thing he told me to believe. He said he's not ashamed to call you brethren. Now I don't know about you, but that picks my stock up a little bit. Because when I sit around it, I think... Listen, devil, thanks for running my life on a loop and reminding me what a weirdo I am. And yet the Lord says, yeah, but you're my weirdo. Because we're family. And he's not ashamed to call you brethren. Yeah, but there must be a time when, you know, he gets put out with us. I mean, I grew up in one of those... I grew up in one of those churches where if you did stuff wrong, you felt like a worm. And you felt like you had to unworm yourself. You're going to have to burn some records. Shred a book. Cancel cable. Because... Unless you do some penance, God's not going to be pleased with you. He's sitting in heaven giving you frowny face emojis all day long. Which is an interesting thought, just not theology. At least not the right theology. The Bible says he's not ashamed to call you brethren. In fact, so much so that even though the devil stands before the Father making accusations against the brethren day and night, Paul went on in Romans 8 and he said in verses 33 and following, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God's the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather was raised. Who is at the right hand of God? Who also intercedes for us. I'm here to say to you today that's good because he's not ashamed you may be ashamed but he's not ashamed you may be a mess but he says you're our mess clearly 
Christ came and he identified with us and he tasted death for us and he absorbed as our substitute all of the consequences of our rebellion. All of the, all of the, all of the consequences of rebellion. Completely. Now rest there. All of your sin. Past, present, and future. He absorbed it. When he was on the cross and you were on his mind, to quote a songwriter, I don't know if his theology is exactly all there, but I'll give, him, I'll give him a pass. When he was on the cross, he didn't just take your sins through 2022. He took them through the moment of your last exhale on this earth. No need to take them beyond that because there is no sin once you inhale in his presence. But he took every one of them. Your big, hairy, ugly sins and your lying on your income taxes sins that you thought were just little old bit. He took all of them. That's why there's therefore now no condemnation. That's why no one can bring a charge against God's elect. He took all your sin, all your sin. See, you're right now, maybe, if you thought about it, you could rehearse back some more of your sin. You could maybe go back and say, yeah, but you know, 1976, man, I blew it. Bigger in Texas. I mean, oh, I was about to say something crazy. Somebody prayed I wouldn't say crazy stuff today, so I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to do it no matter how you goad me. All of your sin. Listen, that thought is so overwhelming. The hymn writer, Horatio Spafford, when he wrote, It is well, in the third verse, my sin, wait a minute, my sin, all of his sin. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to a cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. <laughs> All of it? Yep. For every one of those who would come to him and trust him and walk with him. For those, there's therefore now no condemnation. Well, how can God not be ashamed? I mean, Chris, I'm ashamed. I mean, I know he paid for it, but you know he did it going shaking his head. Like when your youngin does something goofy and you think, bless your little heart. No, that's not what he does. The Bible says he's not ashamed. And here's why he's not ashamed. Christ not only took on our sin and placed, that was placed on him, but he placed on us his righteousness. Catch this now, this will light you fire. Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exalt in my, exult in my God, for He has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with garland, and a bride adorns herself with jewels, God wrapped me up in righteousness. See, when the Father sees us, he sees us through the perfecting role of imputed righteousness given to us by our King. 
Imputed righteousness, that's where he gives us something that we didn't earn, but he makes it as much us as if we had. Imputed righteousness. He gives us his righteousness in such a way it is the totality of our identification. This great exchange, friends, is not aspirational. It's not a goal that we work toward. It's a relationship we work from. And that's true if you're his. So here's the question. Do you have that relationship? You can't earn it. So you have to receive it. Now that's a hitching point for somebody. They'll go, well, what I got to do, Chris, is get my life together pretty good. Then I'll be okay to ask God for it. You should meet my brother-in-law because you're weird. The fact of the matter is you can't get good enough to suddenly be over the line enough to be able to go and ask for it. All you can do is receive it. Well, Chris, I'm not, I'm not used to taking handouts. Then you're going to, I'm not trying to be ugly, but you're going to bust hell wide open. Because the only way you get it is by receiving it with your hands out. You can't get it any other way. You can't lose, by the way, then what you did not earn. Because you didn't earn it. And God doesn't ever describe you, friend. He doesn't ever describe you with an asterisk. Like, this is my kid. But that one takes after his mama's side. God never describes you that way. He says, this is mine. And Jesus says, I'm not ashamed of a one of them. I'm not ashamed. He's not ashamed, no matter your sin. Being a child of God, one of whom he's not ashamed, I think it provokes in us a sense of honor a sense of responsibility and a sense of privilege to represent a father who would show us such love. How great a love the father has shown toward us that we would be called children of God. See, here's what, I'm, here's what I wonder about sometimes. I wonder if maybe we get too close to the church that we miss the Lord of the church. I've been in the church a long time, Chris. I must be good. Stood in my garage for a clean hour yesterday. Never grew a set of tires or a suspension or a steering wheel. Don't matter how long you're in a garage, you won't become a truck. You don't get there by hanging around him. But sometimes you think hanging around him got me there. That's not so. Some say, well, church doesn't make you a Christian. I know, but friend, <laughs> being a Christian will make you a church. When he so touches your life and you know him full on all that you've done. And he says, yeah, but you're mine and I'm not ashamed. You start wanting to live different. Because you know you represent him. I wonder if maybe you'd listen to me today and you'd say, Chris, I've been real big on just, I believe in all the stuff you've said, except for, I don't know that I've ever really yielded to him and let him have it. I've been trying to earn some stuff or, hey, I'm walking around believing he's ashamed of me. Hey, I, 
I don't care much about representing his name. Is that because you think less of him or because you've just never, you've never really yielded to him to start with? Wouldn't it be terrible to get to heaven? I'm sorry. Wouldn't it be terrible to one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ and have him say, son, you were, you were so close. You came a lot, you gave some, you served a bit, but you never opened your hands and received. And because of that, I'm ashamed of your rebellion. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity, for I never knew you. If that's you today, or if you don't know that that's not you today, why don't you make sure that's not you today? And do like this, Lord, I receive. Would you pray with me? Thank you for joining us today. We hope this message has been a blessing. If today's message has prompted you to consider a next step with God, we would love to assist you. Simply drop by our website at inglewoodbaptist.com next or give us a call at 252-937-8254 and let us know how we can assist you. If today's message was an encouragement to you, let me encourage you to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you consume this content. That really helps us reach a wider audience with the life-changing hope of Jesus Christ. We hope you will join us next week. And until next time, may the Lord bless you.